0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're
1: stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast.
2: Paraphilia is a fancy word for a kink. It's defined as a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires typically involving extreme or dangerous activities, paraphilia. There's a word though for non-paraphiliacs that I was not familiar with called normophilia, normophilic desires which are I guess standard issue, everybody should have them. This is the norm, majority desires. That we that's what we mean by norm and normative is Majoritarian usually is what we mean by that. And I've always felt that even when I encounter people who appear to be normal sexually or people who claim to be just average, regular people, everybody's got something from column C. Column A, vaginal, oral, even anal. Column B, you know, rolling around, maybe some of your standard issue fantasies. Column C, kinks. Something crazy. You want to get peed on you're a acrophiliac, you are into crazy bondage, you're into giants, you're into centaurs, you are you have rape fantasies, you have antebellum master-slave fantasies, whatever it is, you have something going on between your ears erotically. And if you're lucky and you've managed to incorporate your desires in an ethical, responsible, consensual way into your sex life, you have it going on in your bedroom too, or your playroom, or your play parties, or whatever it is you get your... Column C kinks on, you got it going on. And all this would be fine if we could just all process this and be cool and chill about it, but we're not cool and chill about it. And the evidence that we're not cool and chill about it is in the mail I get every day because this is the question. This is the question that comes in as often as any other, if not more often. Am I normal? People write me some crazy fucking letter about the crazy fucking things that turn them on, that make them wet, that make them hard, that they're doing or just want to be doing. And they're terrorized by, quote unquote, normal. They want to be normal. They don't want to feel abnormal. They don't want to feel like they have paraphilias. They don't want to be dirty paraphiliacs. Not that they typically use those $10 words to describe themselves. But they will use words like freak, kinkster, abnormal. And I'm baffled by this obsession with normal when it comes to sex and with average when it comes to sex because what good is that and what fun is that? There's an interesting thing when you ask people to describe normal sex that happens and I've asked rooms with hundreds of people in it just to describe for me normal sex. And I'll call on a few people. In one case, I had people all write it down, write it down on cards and send it up to me. Normal sex. You walk into a room, you didn't knock and there are people in there having normal sex what do you see? What are you looking at? And invariably what is described is opposite sex couple, just two people on a bed in the dark, married, having vaginal intercourse, open to procreation. This is normal sex. That's what we picture. And the crazy thing about this definition of normal is that that's freakishly rare. When you lump everybody in together, the queers The unmarried people, the people cheating on their partners, the people who are having quote-unquote normal sex, married straight couple on a bed in the dark, but who knows what's going on between their ears to get them hard and get them off. Could be something fucking nuts. So even people who look like they're having normal sex, in the theaters in their minds, they could be having just the craziest, most paraphilia-spackled sex imaginable. Actually, literally being imagined at that moment. And yet people are tortured by this normal thing that we should all want the same sex. We should all be having the same kind of sex. And if you are in any way aberrant, you're not normal, not be normal sex or something terribly, terribly wrong with you. I feel lucky that I'm gay, that when I was 13, 14 years old, I had to let go of the terror of normal. I couldn't be myself without letting go of opposite sex, straight couple on a bed, having vaginal intercourse. That was the first thing that went. And then everything else that came along in my erotic imagination or my desires, anything else my boyfriends and then husband wanted to do, I didn't examine it through the lens of, well, how not normal does that make me if I do that? Because I was already not normal and freed. This long sort of obsessive rant about normal, it brings me to this new study. Actually, not so new. It came out in November of 2015, but it's only just crossed my desk published by the U.S. National Library of Medicine, the National Institutes of Health. And the study is titled Defining Normophilic and Paraphilic Sexual Fantasies in a Population-Based Sample on the Importance of Considering Subgroups. I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, DSM-5, a sexual fantasy, SF, is paraphilic if it concerns activities outside the realm of genital stimulation or preparatory fondling with phenotypically normal, physically mature, consenting human partners. Anything that falls outside of genital stimulation or preparatory fondling between consenting adults who are phenotypically normal, that's a loaded term right there, is paraphilia. And what was so interesting about this study, and I'm reading it right now as I speak to you, is what they found in the end, which is that normophilic desires are anything but. They recruited and studied the sexual desires and interests and behaviors of 15. 100 adults. That is a huge sample for this kind of study. And what they found was of this group, this random sample of 1500 people, 57% of the sample, quote, met the criteria of paraphilia. So the not normals were normal, were normative. The people labeled paraphiliacs were actually the normophiliacs. And the people labeled normophiliacs were the fucking freaks. This is very liberating. This is something I've said a billion times. I love it when science catches up to my mouth and proves something that I've been saying right. Variance is the norm when it comes to human sexuality and human sexual expression. Variance is the norm when it comes to human dinner. We all like different kinds of foods. Different cultures have different kinds of foods. If you walk into someone's kitchen and there's all these crazy cooking implements and different kinds of pots and pans – Your reaction is, wow, I hope I get invited to dinner a lot here. They love to cook. Your reaction isn't, these abnormal food freaks. They're obsessed with this food stuff. How freakishly abnormal. But if you walk into somebody's house and they have a million sex toys, you think, oh, these abnormal sex freaks. You don't think, I hope I get invited over for sex a lot. Unless you're me. That's what I think. Unfortunately, the conclusion drawn by the study's author, who we're going to invite to come on the show and talk about the study in the future, isn't – The freaks are the normal ones. They just want to narrow what's freakish so they can continue to label freaks as freaks. The results suggest the current criteria for paraphilia are too inclusive. Suggestions are given to improve the definition of pathological sexual interests. They want to narrow the scope of what's considered abnormal so that we can continue to label some people as paraphiliacs, as not normal filiacs, as freaks rather than just accepting that we all exist on this broad continuum of freakish and perhaps not so freakish sexual interests. And if you drill down, you really sit with every individual person, you're going to probably find something from column C. If not in everybody, in a majority. 57% in this study, and I would think that if we replicated this study a few dozen times, that that number is low. But perhaps my sample is skewed because I've been talking to you freaks for such a long time. All right, coming up on today's show, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and coworker of mine, Eli Sanders, is here to talk about his new book, While the City Slept. Eli also hangs out to take a couple of calls on the Magnum and to try his hand at giving sex advice, and he's shockingly good at it, all on today's show.
3: Having grown up in a fundamentalist religion, I recently went to a titty bar for the first time in my life. In that couple hours that I spent there... I quadrupled the number of boobies I have ever touched at this titty bar. The three girls that uh, did lap dances for me uh, kindly let me touch their beautiful boobies. So I wanted to tell, point out that hey, that has helped me, helped give me the courage to go through with my divorce. Now, now to my question: At what point is it ethical? for me to start seeking again or fooling around or hunting. I figure once my wife, it's clear to my wife that marriage is over, uh, even before the divorce is finalized, I figure that's in the clear. She, as long as she knows our marriage is over, it doesn't need to be officially finalized for me to go out and enjoy myself. However, I've been playing around on Twitter a little bit a couple of nice women I've had nice conversations with. They don't know I'm still technically married. And I'm wondering uh, about my uh, moral obligation to tell them, both because I don't want to look like an ass and uh, probably secondary in my, I admit secondary in my motivations, but more important is I don't want to hurt them. Have them find out, well, this is a married guy with all this baggage and he's going through the divorce. What an asshole, he should have told me that.
2: On the other hand,
3: you know, how much of that is really their business.
2: If you're talking about purely casual sex because you want to get out there and touch a bunch of titties and make up for lost time, and the arrangements you've made or the understandings you have, explicit understandings, the discussions you've had with these other women you might be hooking up with soon – are one-time, one-off thing, just looking for fuck buddies or NSA, not looking for any serious commitment, not looking to date, you don't necessarily have to say you're in the process of getting a divorce. You don't have to lay your marital history down before them to assess or make a judgment. If, however, on the other hand, you are presenting yourself as available for a relationship The fact that you're still currently married to someone else is a complicating factor that they may feel entitled to. They may not actually be entitled to it, but they may feel entitled to it. So if you're hoping to date someone, err on the side of disclosure. Because if she didn't care about knowing one way or the other, it's not going to matter when she finds out that you're in the process of divorcing. And so it won't Cost you the relationship that you have with this woman when she finds out if she doesn't care one way or the other. But if she does care, it could cost you the relationship. And since you can't tell just by looking at her or talking to her which one she is, the kind of woman who would care or the kind of woman who wouldn't care, err on the side of telling her for your own self interest because you'd like this to be a relationship. You'd like this perhaps to go places. So don't set off a ticking time bomb at the heart of the relationship by holding this information back. Disclose. If you want to date somebody, if you're open to this being uh, a relationship going forward and not just a one-off NSA thing, if it's a one-off NSA thing, you don't got to disclose.
4: Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old lesbian, cis-black female in a relationship with a 24-year-old cis-white female. Although we're both young, we've been together for over three years and have started to have some serious conversations about our future and marriage. We've always usually avoided conversations about children, but recently when we were discussing if we were to have children, um, we were talking about what ethnicity those children would be. She told me in a conversation that since her mother has four other children who are all biracial, black and white, um, she expressed a desire for my partner to have a purely Caucasian child because she would love to have at least one purely white grandchild. This was extremely offensive to me, and as a black woman who's really passionate about black issues and my heritage, I have no desire to have white children. Am I, as she put it, being kind of racist? How can we reconcile?
2: There's such an easy out here. I could just remind you that you're 22 years old and you've been with this woman since you were 19 or 18 years old and ask you how many people who are adults and parents do you know who are with the people they were dating before they could legally buy a drink in whatever state they live in. And just encourage you not to reproduce at this time, to kick this can down the road, to not attempt to further unpack who the real racist is here. And spoiler alert, I don't think it's you. Because odds are you're not going to wind up with this person that you've been dating for three years for the long term. Particularly if your girlfriend's first response to her mother's baldly racist statements about the preferences she has for her next grandchild's race is to pivot and accuse her black girlfriend of being the real racist here i think if i were a black lesbian passionate about race racism black lives everything else that i wouldn't be able to continue dating that person after that stunt that's some fox news bullshit right there who's the real racist it's the black person So your girlfriend has some work to do and your girlfriend's mother has some work to do. And your girlfriend's response to her mother should have been, and this is the conversation you need to have with your girlfriend. Now I think your girlfriend's response to her mother should have been back the fuck off, put my uterus down and my girlfriend's uterus down and back out of the room slowly, not your business. You will have the grandchildren that you have and we will determine who bears them and where we get the sperm and everything else. It's a private decision. That's kind of not what your girlfriend said to her mother. Your girlfriend said, yeah, your girlfriend could kind of see her mother's point, wanting a sparkly white translucent baby. And then you said you had no interest in a white child, and your girlfriend was able to play the real racist card, who's the real racist, reverse racism, defense mechanism, whitey thing on you. She was able to lay that card in front of you. And maybe you opened yourself up to that Fox News move by the inelegant way in which you expressed yourself because I'm sure that if there was a mix up at the sperm bank and it rather than your partner, if she's the one who bears the child being impregnated with an African American sperm donors, sperm was impregnated accidentally with a white dude's sperm that even if that white child that you didn't expect, you guys were expecting a mixed race child emerged from your girlfriend or then wife's vagina in the delivery room, you would love that white child. That you would suddenly have an interest in having a white child. You wouldn't love that child that you two had together any less because it was white. Unlike your partner's asshole mother who has clearly telegraphed to you both that she would love on some level a white grandchild more than her mixed-race grandbabies that she already has. So that thing that you said, you have no desire to have white children. I think you might want to walk that back a little bit and just say if I had white children, I would love them. But I have a desire to raise an African-American or a mixed-race child. I want to have a kid that I share that with, that I share blackness with. And if your girlfriend doesn't want to have a kid who is mixed-race, who shares blackness with her partner, with their other mother, maybe you two aren't meant for each other. This is a really complicated conversation you and your girlfriend have to have. And you need to have it without your girlfriend's mother's involvement at all, period. And if your girlfriend can't recognize that what her mother said was deeply offensive and her first loyalty is to her mother, not to you. And she pivots to attack and malign you in this circumstance. You need to ask yourself why she's your girlfriend.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a 23 year old female heterosexual. I am in a relationship with a man. We've been together for a little over a year now and we are pretty serious. We've talked about engagement, marriage, uh, we're both in grad school, but when I graduate after him, we're gonna, I'm going to move to wherever he is, and we would like to get married and start raising a family. However, there are some problems. I am very happy with him. He's very, very good to me. He's very stable and calming and, you know, Midwest nice. because That's where we live. But sometimes that translates into the bedroom. And I would like to let my freak flag fly a little bit there have been instances where he's so shy about sex in his house that he will shush me as I'm about to orgasm so that his roommates don't hear us. And there is no greater mood killer than shh when you're about to come. So I'm just wondering how I can get him to branch out a little bit and not be so shy about sex. I tried a massage candle. I thought that was a nice way to break into a little bit of kinkier stuff. He has not used it with me. It's been sitting on our bedside table for a month now. So please let me know what I can do. I need this good old Midwestern boy to break out and be so I can be a lady on the street but a freak in the bed. So please help me out.
2: I'd never heard of this massage candle kink of yours, this freaky fetish that you rolled out. I had to look it up. At first I thought, what's kinky about a candle? And then I found out when I went online, a massage candle is you light the candle and it melts. And as it melts, the the wax becomes massage oil. And that's super kinky because you're touching each other, which you were doing before. But now you're touching each other and you're slimy. One man's kink is another man's completely vanilla thing. And as kinks go, I think that's pretty mild. So if that was your move into kink, that was a subtle one. Perhaps he didn't pick up on it. Perhaps he doesn't know that it turns into massage oil. You might have to tell him. I myself had to Google it. All that said, you didn't call about the candle. You called about the boyfriend's inhibition. I'm wondering if perhaps the roommates have complained about the noise that you make during sex. That would mean that it's not about him shaming you or shushing you. It's about him being torn between his desire to see you get off and you to enjoy himself and his desire not to offend or upset, or annoy, or awake his roommates. That it's torn between desire to pleasure you and consideration for his roommates. That's a real place where people can land. But if he's just struggling with sex shame, as so many people do, they'll go into a bedroom and they'll close the door with their girlfriend when they have roommates, and everybody knows what they're going in there to do, but somehow the confirmation of that hourly leaking out from under the door is humiliating and embarrassing Why? Because why? That's all you have to say to him. Why? Why is that embarrassing? I'm your girlfriend. We're sexually active. They know it. It doesn't bother them that we're having sex or that I sometimes make noise. Why should it bother you? If indeed it doesn't bother them, you need to run that to ground. Your boyfriend might not be the problem. The roommates could be the problem. And if indeed it is the roommates who have a problem with the noise that you're making, then the solution is simple. You get the original Broadway cast recording of Avenue Q and while you guys are fucking and you are screaming and yelling, you blast as loud as possible to mask and cover the noise you're making the song. You can be as loud as the hell you want when you're making love.
4: Hi, Dan. I'm a 36 year old hetero male living on the East Coast and I have been a serial monogamous for most of my adult life and now I am trying to be single and trying to just I'll be a bit of a man whore and, you know, be promiscuous, have fun. I'm slightly kinky, but I am bad at approaching women. I could really use some guidance. I am a nice guy. I don't want to do any nice guy ones, but I like being a good guy, and I don't want to be an asshole in order to get women in bed with me.
2: There are women out there who are interested in casual sex, plenty of them. You don't have to be an asshole to be attractive. You don't have to – I never talk about these people actually in my column and I rarely ever mention them on the podcast because I don't want to give them any sunshine or attention. But you don't have to be a pickup artist jerk off, negging or whatever their other strategies are to manipulate women into fucking you. You just have to be – honest and direct and you can be nice while you're being honest and direct. Don't be dismissive. Don't be rude. Don't be mean. Put what you're looking for out there. Put yourself out there. Don't mislead anyone actively or passively. Don't mislead by omission. A lot of men and women feel like if someone has expressed an interest in them sexually that that then therefore means they're interested in perhaps a relationship or most likely interested in a relationship with them as well. If you're not interested in a relationship, well, don't allow someone to make that assumption. And that is a reasonable assumption to make. If you're casually sexing someone and then they find out that's all you're interested in and they get angry, you don't get to get angry at them for the assumption they made about your intentions because it's a reasonable assumption to make about your intentions. So be direct. Did the serial monogamy thing, out of a long-term relationship, out of a marriage if you're just getting out of a marriage, and now I'm just interested in casual sex. And I'm a nice guy and I'm a respectful guy and I'm a good guy to hang out with. And if you need me in a pinch for something, I can be there for you because friends are friends and a casual relationship is still a relationship, not an exclusive relationship. Just be yourself and be direct. Don't lie by commission or omission and you can have the casual sex you're looking for and still have your nice guy cred and self-respect too.
6: Hey, Dan, i got a question for you. I have a very good friend from college who is now dating a girl who it seems like he's about to move in with who has this whole online BDSM persona, which involves her talking about their sex life online, not using any names, but, you know, I'm president, so I know who they're talking about. And also posting pictures of herself on Instagram and making pictures of herself on Tumblr. And all of this I'm totally fine with. And uh, I don't have a problem with it. I listen to you all the time, so of course, you know, I'm cool with this stuff. But uh, I still am surprised and I'm still shocked. And when I see other friends of ours, I mutually know, I still talk about it. And I don't talk about it in a mean way. But I talk about it and I'm like, oh, my God, have you seen this? Isn't that crazy? And my friend who's dating this girl, hasn't said anything to me, but a couple of my other friends have been like, dude, it kind of sounds like you're being a little offensive, like you need to stop talking about it all the time. And I think they're just being insanely politically correct. And I think it's okay for me to be shocked and tantalized by this and to talk about it. And uh, I don't think it's that big a deal. And I don't think that she would be doing it if she didn't expect people like me to react this way. I don't think I'm being negative, I fully support it. I think it's great. But I also think it's kind of crazy, and I think it's fun to talk about. So am I being an asshole, or um, is this okay for me to bring it up when I see my friends because I think it's nuts?
2: Maybe the problem isn't that you're being an asshole, or the only problem isn't that you're being an asshole, because it kind of does sound like you're being an asshole. Maybe the real problem is you're just being boring, Your friend is dating someone who has a sex blog where she posts pictures. He's over it. It sounds like everyone in your friend circle is over it. doesn't sound like it shocks him. doesn't sound like it shocks them. And your never-ending shock, zoinks, oh my god, look, is just boring. And you should be a grown-up and be over it. It's fine for you to be tantalized by it. It's fine for you to patronize her blog and her Tumblr feed or whatever else. I'm sure she wants the eyeballs and the traffic but it's just a fact about her and a fact about their relationship and a known one. So you running in circles every time she puts up a new picture and falling on the floor is really a way of attracting attention to yourself and performing your shock and to what end and to benefit whom? What's the point? It is an asshole move, but I don't think that's the real issue here. I don't think that's why your friends are telling you to shut the fuck up. Clearly your friends have some tolerance or assholery, or they wouldn't be your friends. I think your friends are just sick of it and bored and over it and wondering why you are not over it yet. Get the fuck over it. Yeah, clearly this woman is putting this all out there because she wants a reaction, but she wants that reaction from the people looking at her blog, looking at her Tumblr, not the people talking to her fucking boyfriend. And you've had your reaction, and you've had the same reaction over and over and over again Time to have a new reaction, which is blasé acceptance of this fact about your friend's girlfriend. Get the fuck over it. Knock it the fuck off. Stop being a boring asshole.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old female in a heterosexual relationship. Um, My boyfriend and I have been together for about a year. Everything's going really great. Except for one thing. His sister really doesn't like me. And the problem with this is that his sister is his best friend. We're both 26. She's a couple years younger than us. And I have entered this awkward space with her in which she is refusing to be very honest with me. I can tell, you know, based on the distance between what she says and how she behaves that she doesn't like me very much. Um, She's frequently like very aloof and strained around me. Um, She'll answer my boyfriend's texts, but not mine when we're standing right next to each other. And she's just very disrespectful towards me in a lot of ways, mostly from a communications perspective. But I don't know what to do about this. I've raised the issue to my boyfriend. We've talked about it a lot. He attempted to confront her once about it. And there's been really no resolution. She gave like a very kind of strange response, we'll say, when confronted about it. She basically said, oh, well, there was this one time I I blew her off, but I didn't mean it. Basically dumbing it down to one situation, which it had nothing to do with. So my problem is that these two are best friends. I love my boyfriend. I want to stay with him, but I'm not sure what to do about his sister.
2: My husband has a brother. You know how often my husband's brother and I talk? Never. Never often. About that often. Never. I don't understand why it's so important to you that your boyfriend's sister communicates with you at all. You're in a relationship with him. She may, if you guys wind up staying together, become your sister-in-law someday. But even then, that can be a very casual and very distant relationship. The trick when... A sibling and a spouse don't get along isn't to hammer away at that and shove those two people together and process endlessly whatever slight or disconnect or personality conflict led to this communications breakdown. The trick is to just let it fucking be. If you choose instead to force your boyfriend of one year to choose between you and his sister of 24 years, you are going to lose and you should lose if you force that choice upon him. And the slights that you mention, she doesn't respond to your texts promptly or at all, in the grand scheme of slights, are pretty minor. And if you're keeping score about demeanor, promptness, how you're sort of amorphously treated or how you perceive yourself to be treated, you're the problem, not her, except – Let's just, like, worst-case scenario this. His sister fucking hates your guts. Okay, then, what? Does he have to murder his sister? Does he have to end his relationship with his sister to demonstrate to you that his first loyalty is with you? Uh, okay, you lose. He's going to break up with you. And he should break up with you, because that's kind of fucking nuts. What you say to him is, your sister and I, we really just don't... We don't click, and maybe that'll come in time, but right now it's awkward, so... Tell you what, I'm not going to fucking text her anymore and then time her responses because that's crazy. And if you're going to go hang out with your sister some night, that's fine. I'll go hang out with my friends that night. We don't have to be forced together into the same room and I'm not going to force you to choose. And I would hope that she is mature enough and loving enough not to force you to choose either. That we are adults and we are autonomous individuals and we can have people in our lives, each of us separately, that the other doesn't like or really appreciate without – making a showdown about it without having to have a showdown about it, without having to issue ultimatums and demand confrontations. And it has been my experience with people who issue ultimatums and demand confrontations about piddling little bullshit like this, that it's about control. If this was a man doing it to a woman, sowing discord in the family, demanding to be chosen over family, we would quickly recognize that as potentially signs of an abuser because that's sort of isolating people from their support systems and their networks and their families and their friends. That's what abusers do. We're less quick to recognize that shit when it is a woman doing it, particularly when a woman does it by framing it as my feelings are hurt. I have a sad. Tend to my sad by confronting your sister or by not seeing your sister anymore because it hurts me when you see your sister because she's such a bitch to me because she doesn't respond to my text promptly or at all here's what you do. You drop it. You stop making an issue of this at all. You tell yourself it don't matter. You tell yourself that your partner, your boyfriend is free to have a relationship with his sister that does not involve you and you're not going to police that relationship and you're not going to fault him for it or make an issue of it. I've been a little hard on you. Maybe you're not the problem. Maybe his sister is really gaslighting you. If this is indeed a fight to the death in a competition, the only way for you to win, if she's the problem, not you, is for you to let it go, is for you to make no demands about resolution. It doesn't actually sound like she's trying to force him to pick. So that's how you compete with his sister. You don't force him to pick either. You show him that you're going to force him even less to pick less than she is. Because if indeed you are not the problem in a situation like this, the only way for you to win is to be the better person to wage a charm offensive to rise above it not to sink to his sister's level if indeed his sister is the problem and not you we're going to take a break from your calls because we have a guest in the studio today who's come all the way from his desk which is at least 30 paces away he's my colleague and co-worker here at the stranger my base paper eli sanders hi nice to be here
7: thanks for joining us the trip over was exhausting (laughs) I hope you didn't have a layover. (laughs) Just in the corner of the hallway for a few minutes. Uh, This isn't log rolling and
2: this isn't just uh, me doing a reach around for The Stranger. Eli wrote a piece in 2011 called The Bravest Woman in Seattle, a a long piece, a feature for The Stranger about a horrific crime that happened here in Seattle. And it won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing, which is a big deal. A lot of weekly papers don't typically win – Pulitzer Prizes, period. And it was really rare for a paper or a a journalist to win at a weekly paper to win the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing.
7: Yeah, I think we were only, I think, the sixth alt-weekly ever. And you've now turned that piece into
2: a much uh, longer, deeper dive of a book called While the City Slept by Eli Sanders. Um, And it's out now. And we're going to talk about the book. It's a departure from our usual content here at the Lovecast. Can you tell us about the crime? that led to the the story that has now uh, led to this book.
7: Sure. And the book traces three lives that intersected in this really terrible crime in Seattle in 2009. Two of those lives, however, comprise a love story. And so there is uh, something that I think anyone can grab onto there. Uh, Two women, Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper, who spent many years finding themselves, bouncing around the country, finding out who they were, coming to terms with their sexuality, and ultimately finding each other and their home in South Park, which is a neighborhood just to the south of Seattle. And then the other life it traces is the life of Isaiah Kalebu, who came out of a difficult family environment and struggled with serious mental illness as he aged into adulthood. And for him, that was connected to violence and he bounced in and out of the state's criminal justice and mental health systems in a way that really starkly res- reveals the failings of those systems and ultimately on july nineteenth, two 2009 his path collided with the path Teresa and jen had made with each other
2: collided is a almost a passive way of describing what happened you know he did suffer from mental health issues he was failed by the mental health system the criminal justice system throughout his life, but he broke into their house and committed a horrifying crime.
7: Yes. And he, yes, yes. He raped both of them. He attempted to kill both of them and did kill Teresa, uh, and nearly killed Jennifer, who was able to escape from the house into the street. And you front.
2: described her in your original piece in the stranger as the bravest woman in Seattle.
7: Why? That was the headline the piece was given, and that that piece was written two years after the crime occurred, after her testimony in court. And so imagine having survived this crime, having lost the person that you were in love with and that you were engaged to be married to. They were engaged to be married in August of that year. And to sit in court, in public, in front of lawyers, in front of journalists, in front of strangers— And with the person who committed this crime proximate to you and tell this story, it was a harrowing experience. And she delivered her testimony with this stunning clarity and sense of purpose about letting people know who had been lost, what had been lost, and in the spirit of seeking justice for herself and for Teresa.
2: And also remarkable was... A lack of anger on her part that she recognized through her pain and what had been done to her that the, the person who had done this had also been victimized which was what was so stunning and shocking about her testimony
7: absolutely and you,
2: would, you would project yourself into her experience you think i would not be capable of that kind of grace
7: right i still am not sure i would ever be capable of that kind of grace and she has been on a journey as she describes it where that sense of forgiveness has grown over time. I think in 2011, when she testified, she was already there or close to there in terms of a curiosity about his path and um, a sense of just sorrow. I think when you experience for certain people, when you experience loss that profound and pain, um, pain of that magnitude, you don't really want, anyone else to suffer in this way. And you certain really admirable people, it opens up uh, a a bigger chamber of empathy for other people's pain. Mm -hmm. And so she, but to open
2: up a bigger chamber of empathy for other people's pain is one thing, but for the pain of the person who inflicted this pain on you, that's another.
7: Oh yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's really stunning. And the book traces in part her journey to greater forgiveness for Isaiah Kalebu and curiosity about him, but she, she said at his sentencing, not long after uh, she testified against him, that she wished him peace even at that time. The book
2: traces her journey toward even a greater degree of forgiveness for the person who did this to her. But the book also indicts the system that allowed this to happen or contributed to this happening. Can you describe that that process of diving into that, diving into
7: the rapist and murderers history. It was dark, you know, at the experience of going back through it, but it had, I thought a purpose and I hope there's purpose in illustrating that path for readers. Our mental health system in this country is broken and our criminal justice system has been neglected for far too long. And there is actually bipartisan agreement on this. Mm-hmm. And so if we can look at a, case like this and maybe feel a greater sense of urgency about actually implementing some fixes, that would be good because there is agreement that there's a problem. There's not agreement about solutions. Mm -hmm. But if you're asking about his, his path, he, when he became a young adult was exhibiting really uh, concerning signs of his serious mental illness and his family became concerned, they, there was an incident where he walked into a business on Capitol Hill and claimed he owned it. Mm -hmm. What he was saying made no sense and police were called. And this was actually a good thing. Instead of him being taken to jail, his mom who was there uh, prevailed upon the police to take him to, uh, for an emergency psychiatric evaluation at Harborview, which is a publicly funded hospital here in Seattle. And so this is one of his earliest encounters with quote unquote the system and he was evaluated but released too quickly mm-hmm. without follow-up after care without any prescription and the next day attacked his mother when she was urging him to. And get there was no follow-up care. No. And
2: his stay wasn't long enough because we don't want to pay for it. Essentially. but We we pay for these things in the end. If we don't have. Exactly. Mental health care services for poor people
7: as well as for the wealthy there will be consequences right. for everyone. What we have right now in this country is mental health care for the wealthy who can afford it out of pocket mm-hmm. really. Or if you're lucky enough to have a, a health insurance plan through your employer that covers uh, good mental health care. But for everyone else, we have the public mental health system, which is in shambles and our healthcare system, which is also really challenged and our criminal justice system, which now in our country's jails and prisons houses, 10 times as many mentally ill individuals as do our public mental health hospitals. Well, post Reagan, that was the, that was
2: the compromise and not compromise. That was what was done. We, we defunded mental health care. We deinstitutionalized people, which was presented as good for the people we were deinstitutionalizing. These institutions are terrible, but in the end was just, fuck you. We don't want to pay for this shit anymore. And now we warehouse the mentally ill in our prisons after They commit a crime that qualifies them to be imprisoned. Exactly. So we pay to imprison them after
7: somebody is dead. Somebody is murdered or raped or killed in her home. Exactly. And it's important to say as we're talking about this that the vast majority of people who live with a mental illness are not violent. They are in fact more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. But for the small percentage of people who are struggling with a serious mental illness that's connected to violence, yes, the cost can be – incalculable. And there are costs for all the other people who live with mental illness and are not committing violent crimes. A lot of them are ending up in prisons also at at a terrible cost to their families, to themselves and to society. But take the case of Isaiah Kalebu. In the book, I tally up the cost. Of course, the cost of his crime is incalculable. The pain that Jennifer, the family of Teresa Butts now live with, the trauma that his family experience that they've experienced, you can't calculate that. But we so often in our politics calculate uh, based on taxpayer dollars. So let's add up the taxpayer dollars. It cost the public to pay for Isaiah Kalebu's trial, to pay to prosecute him, to pay to defend him because he didn't have money for attorneys, to pay a public expense for his appeal, to pay to jail him while he was on trial, and now to... Uh, house him in a state prison for life, that is going to cost the taxpayers of Washington State more than $3 million. And it would not have cost more than $3 million to have tried to intervene more helpfully or at certain points more forcefully as he was on what was a pretty clear path toward terrible violence. So we don't want to give it away, but do you have policy
2: prescriptions? Are there conclusions you came to, things that could be done and should be done to prevent crimes like this? This happening is, in the future or, or, or people with Isaiah's problems lashing out like this in the future.
7: Yes. In the book, there are some models uh, or actually one model in New York state that I point to that could be applied more robustly nationwide and would help in particular cases like Isaiah's where he's on a, a clear descent and also resistant to ch- uh, getting help. Even when it's offered, which in his case, it wasn't being offered that much. But the broader message that I came away with, at least from doing all this work, is that exactly as you're saying, it's so much more expensive to not have a mental health system or to not invest in preventative measures. And so across the board, we need to be investing much, much more in the unsexy realm of prevention which is basically just community health or community mental health. So the the deinstitutionalization uh, effort that you were talking about began in the 60s. And for all the decades since the 60s, we have failed to actually fund a community treatment apparatus for uh, the mentally ill. So we could start there. That would be a great preventative measure Mm -hmm. that would catch people rather than letting them fall all the way through the safety net into homelessness, into uh, drug or alcohol abuse, or into, in some cases, violence. The book is
2: While the City Slept, A Love Lost to Violence and a Young Man's Descent into Madness by Eli Sanders, published this month. And it's getting terrific reviews everywhere. And thank you so much for coming in and talking with us about it.
7: Thanks for having me on. But before we let you go, you actually have a podcast of your own. It's called Blabbermouth, and it goes up on Fridays. It's the Strangers Week in Review podcast. Are we allowed to use Week in Review to describe it? Or that, did... No one's trademarked that phrase that I know of. There's <laughs> a hope. lot of
2: Week in Review programs out there, and we've got one of them, hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders.
7: It's got a Seattle focus, but you talk about national issues too. Yes, and I think in the next couple of weeks we'll be talking a lot about Bernie and Hillary because our caucuses and primaries are coming up here.
2: Check it out. It's called Blabbermouth. You can find it on iTunes and you can find it at thestranger.com. We wanted to keep you around and let you answer just a regular old savage love sex question so you could have some fun so it's not all grim. Because the book is important. The book is a terrific read, but it's harrowing. And we thought we'd like throw a sex question at you and let you play in our usual
7: pond. I appreciate it. I'll do my best.
8: Hi, Dan. I love your show. I'm a 20-something cis gay guy on the East Coast. I have less of a question and more of sort of like a prompt um i've been seeing this guy for a while now he's i hesitate to say soulmate because i know how you feel about that but he have to do like so little rounding up when i think about him but there is one thing that i have to sort of like admit doesn't really work between us and it's that we're both very competitive people and we both love to play games and it doesn't work out so well when we play together like board games or card games or video games because we'll just get, like, really passive-aggressive and um, just it just doesn't work. Like, one of us always ends up getting, like, shafted or our feelings hurt. And um, I'm not totally faultless. Um, I'm not totally blaming him. But I was wondering, like, how do you feel about competitiveness in relationships? Like, do you see it work with other couples? Um, Is it healthy to be competitive? It doesn't really feel healthy with us about, like, two thirds or like 75% of the time. I just feel like so angry with him after we get done playing a game. Nobody really wins. Like even if I win or even if he wins, the other person is just pissed off. So yeah, I don't know um, if this is like a red flag. Um, We usually come together after it and apologize, but it just pisses me off because we both love playing games so much, but we can't do that thing together.
2: So you're a nice Jewish boy. (laughs) who married a doctor that's true the brass ring if you were a nice jewish girl you would be your mother's like pride and joy i assume you are anyway yeah most days some days are you and your husband competitive yes because you're both like hard charging professionals in your fields but do you compete with each other
7: yes for what well dominance (laughs) we met on the soccer field playing gay soccer, uh, playing in a gay soccer club. So this is how I met my husband, and he knocked me down and scored on me, is the short of it. And he's still knocking you down and scoring on you. Yes, and so this is my advice to uh, this person. One, find a realm where you can compete. Maybe if you're on teams, it kind of diffuses the sense of loss. If one of you loses and the other wins, Like you can be like, well, yeah, you played a good game, but really the other people on your team... We're carrying that for you.
2: I'm mad at all of those assholes right, and not you
7: and it dilutes the anger. Exactly. So maybe that can help. But then also uh, if you can transform that uh, sense of anger into something else, something more exciting, uh, then great. Like what? Well, he talked about they usually come together afterward and – and I think he was not talking about it in the in the sexual sense, but they have they they they, they apologize, they make up, but he's it sounds like he's kinda of sick of the let's play a board game, let's get pissed off
2: at each okay, other. So the
7: on the board game thing, I don't play board games, particular board games with my husband because he Cheats. <laughs> he has said very clearly that our relationship might end if he lost. So that's okay. Which is actually where I was when I was listening to the call. I was like, this is a doctor, doctor. It hurts when
2: I go like this. When I do this call, I was like, well, then fucking don't do it. Don't play board games or card games with your boyfriend. Exactly. Suck his cock. Compete on that field. 69 until – and whoever comes first wins. Do that.
7: Yeah. And yeah. And just don't play certain games if that's going to ruin everything. But – I think others can lead to what you're describing as well. One of the things in
2: a long-term relationship – you're in a long-term same-sex relationship. I'm in a long-term same-sex relationship. Part of the deal is you identify the things that you don't do together. You don't do fucking everything together. There's also things that you know we don't do that together because that's a conflict generator. So we're not – I don't go clothes shopping with Terry – because I can't watch the money disappear without wanting to murder him.
7: <laughs> right. Well and So I just
2: don't I just don't go. And I don't look anymore.
7: Yeah. Colin won't play tennis with me because it's a one on one sport and he's just like blanket statement, we can never do it. So mm-hmm. okay. He doesn't like playing Scrabble because I win. I hope sex, which in most relationships is a one on one sport, is something you guys can play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've been playing a lot of that sport. Is that competitive? Is there a competitive edge there? Uh, not on the, not in the sport realm, I don't think. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think about it I in the I shot same farther. Way. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> now I'm never going to get that out of my head. head. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever hits the bullseye wins. <laughs> um, no, I think it's different. I think it's, uh, um, there's a, it's not, it's not. Because competing to please each other was different than competing to defeat the other. Well, I was going to say no one loses, Hopefully. In that realm. Oh, you do it differently than we do it.
2: <laughs> Somebody always loses at our house. Oh,
7: really? Just there's just whimpering and yeah, pain and sulking curled up and in the fetal and, position on the uh, floor in
2: the bedroom afterwards. <laughs> and the like, victor
7: steps over that broken person and goes to the bathroom and takes a shower. Oddly enough, that's exactly how I imagined it.
9: <laughs> hey Dan, I am a 30 year old queer femme who tends to date women who are more masculine presenting, and in my relationships, including the one I'm currently exploring, I find that my partner is able to lavish me with compliments and I can receive those freely and just bask in them. And I want to throw it back, but I feel a little bit restricted in what to say, not because she's restricting me, but because I don't feel that my language adequately expresses how awesome and captivating and sexy I think she is. I find myself wanting to capture the feeling that I have and how I perceive her and experience her. And then words like cute or adorable or pretty come out. And that's not true to her. It's not how she presents. And it doesn't capture what I want to say, Uh, but my language is is really um, holding me back. So my question for you is, um, can you give me some examples of compliments for a lover that are not gender specific and also not diminutive?
2: I might have to recuse myself from this. <laughs> this is like gender hand wringing and I always get in trouble with the gender hand ringers because, you know, oh, I you know, want to give my butch. Girlfriend, a compliment that doesn't seem feminine. You know, all the compliments she rattles off, you could, you could make of a Hello Kitty doll, cute, adorable, pretty. She can. She needs sort of gender non-specific ones, and I'm I'm just going to leave that to you. Although you know, I call my husband gorgeous, even though that's typically a term applied to women. He doesn't have a fucking meltdown. Hopefully, your girlfriend. Butch as she is, can take a compliment that may be gendered typically toward women without having a meltdown. But you never know now in genderland. So, Eli, you take it. I, I don't have the sensitivity gene for
7: this question. <laughs> I think I can help, actually. Oh, honestly. really? Good. Yes. So, as you may have heard, I just wrote this book that is in part a love story two women finding each other. And Jennifer and Teresa in this book actually struggle at a certain point with the expressions of love and adoration. And Jennifer is someone who's way more... Uh, quick to I love you. And Teresa is someone who wants to find exactly the right words and wants them to really correctly apply in the moment that uh, she says them and doesn't want to kind of degrade the value of words by using them when they're not exactly right. So, But she gets there to I love you. And the problem that the caller is having it doesn't sound like a problem like get out of this That's half
2: the calls actually
7: right? <laughs> This does not like a problem but all right we'll field the question i love you works i want you works i mean what what i statements you turn me on sure you make me so wet i never knew you felt that way.
2: <laughs> i was pretending i was a lesbian and you were my lesbian partner oh well
7: then i won't feel we were role-playing i see well, so... You're so flustered. Do you, do you want to be my lesbian partner in some alternate universe? Only on the Savage Love cast.
2: <laughs> Which is an alternate universe.
7: Yes. Yes.
2: Uh, so I think the, the recommendation is I statements. Describe how you feel about her rather than trying to apply descriptors to her that she may not be comfortable yeah,
7: with. Not only that, but like, I'm sorry. Don't waste your time calling and processing and hemming and hawing like... Sp- What else are young people, millennials (laughs) supposed to do? That's their job because they don't have actual jobs or real problems. But the place I come from with this is is having a a very long connection now with a relationship that ended quickly and not by anyone's choosing. Mm. And if you are dancing around the most appropriate word to say at the most appropriate moment and – well, imagine if suddenly you don't have any more moments. Not to be a downer, but like maybe that's the – Too late. Too late you're being a downer, but it's it's totally a legitimate downer point. Well, or maybe it's a tool that you can use. Like if you had no more moments, what the hell would you say to this woman? That might help. And if you say the
2: wrong thing and this woman freaks out, you might want to – might help her to keep the freaking out partner, to keep it in perspective by imagining that this was the last moment. And are you going to waste the last moment freaking out about the wrong compliment? Because that really what it comes down to. Oh, you gave me the wrong compliment. If I was with somebody who f- had a meltdown because I paid them the wrong compliment, <laughs> I don't
7: know if I could be with that person for very long. I wouldn't want to be yelled at for the wrong compliment. Now, so I – this is interesting because I didn't hear her saying that the other person is getting mad at her. I thought that this was all kind of self-persecutory stuff that's going you're on right, in her actually, mind. You're right. you're right. So again, like get But it she over. fears
2: the other person having some sort of meltdown. So if you give the compliment and they have a meltdown, then she's a – you gave me the wrong compliment meltdowning girlfriend and you probably don't want to be with her. But if
7: she's never had a meltdown and this is just your shit, knock it off. Right. Because you know what the easiest thing to hear is? A compliment. So she's not likely to get upset and you're – exactly as you say. If she is, then yeah, maybe rethink it. You're very pretty. Thank you. See? you're very wet
2: <laughs> i can take that compliment <laughs> eli actually has no idea how damp i am at this moment or whether i'm damp at all i do actually we're sitting only two feet away and
7: it's uh, it's pooling
2: <laughs> thank you for that lovely compliment and thank you for demeaning yourself as a journalist and a professional by taking a couple of crazy sex questions on my podcast
7: always happy to demean myself with you
10: Hi Dan. Um now I'm having a little bit of an issue. Um uh, my issue concerns sexting. I have been sexting a person who is very dangerous to me. And uh this person took those texts and took screenshots of those and showed them to who at the time was my was who I wanted to be my life partner and um And uh, that ruined my relationship. I truly maintain that I did not mean to send those texts. I I, I don't know how it happened. I feel like it is an addiction. Now, I'm just kind of wondering uh, where does addiction begin or where does fetish begin? Um, I know that I enjoy uh, texting. And so on some level, I enjoy doing that. On the other level, I know it's very dangerous for me and it has ruined my relationship now and it threatens to ruin others going forward. I would like to stop it um, because that is for my personal life, but I have a hard time doing that. And so I guess my question is, should I embrace it and just continue sexting um, with one particular person who I find very dangerous? And who I do not want to have a relationship with or, and I'm somebody who also ruined my life for that matter. Or should I just fight it as hard as I can and repress those emotions?
2: I'm curious, uh, whether this person that you sent these texts to wanted you to send these texts to them? Did they encourage you to send these texts to them?
10: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, we've had a sexting relationship for a long time—five or six years—and
2: yet this person is dangerous.
10: See, I'm I'm just so confused by it. Then I'm just I had this sexting relationship with her. I really enjoyed that, um, but then when I met this new girl, I wanted to stop the sexting, and uh, and I and I did, I and mean, I fought it for a while. But uh, I guess the compulsion got a better of me. And, um, I'm wondering what does that mean? Does that mean I have a compulsion that I have to take this out of me? Uh, I mean, this is, this has already been a, a year ago now and I've done everything in my power to try to quit this. And I've also done everything in my power to try to get back with the person who I fell in love with. Right. Neither, and I haven't had and, success and so this, with either of those.
2: This person, this woman that you were sexing mm-hmm. with. She maliciously mm. took screen grabs and showed them to the person that you were dating to destroy that relationship. That's right. And yet mm-hmm. you are still in a sexing relationship with this malicious shitbag. Yes. Why?
6: I can't stop. I, I, it's, <laughs> is, is she the I, only, I,
2: Wait, wait, wait. Is she the only person on earth with a phone that you can sext <laughs> with? Is she the only other person with a cell phone? Have you heard of Tumblr? Uh, sure. I mean, I, (laughs) I, you can create a blog that's nothing but images of yourself on Tumblr and share it with the world. You can sext the world without having to (laughs) sext this, this bitch who maliciously, and you know, she's got her side of the story too. Who knows what her version of events might sound like. But from your characterization, this malicious bitch who reached out and destroyed your relationship so that you would be able to keep sending her pictures. Does she want that much control over you? Is she sort of, sort of, sort of deranged dominant what is she
10: no like I, i'm definitely the dominant and that's that's something i like about it and and you know on in, in fairness to her like i understand where she's coming from like i understand people make mistakes she's apologized about it profusely i mean she's I, I i i it's just i i just don't know like you said it was a malicious thing that she did it was a horrible thing that she did
2: is she in a relationship um, with somebody else
10: no, she's not.
2: No, this person that you've been in a five-year sexting relationship with, who is single as you are single, why aren't yeah. you two a couple?
4: I don't like her. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds really strange,
10: but I don't like her. I don't want to be in a relationship with her. When we get to get okay, it's it's a very it's almost become a BDSM like relationship where I am the dominant one and I just tell her what to do and. What I really like doing is sharing these these texts, these texts. I don't really actually like seeing her, and I don't even like being with her physically.
2: Okay. Okay, but, stop. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think you should – and you might misinterpret this acronym when I throw it out there if you're involved in the BDSM community at all. But I think you need some CBT, mm-hmm. and I don't mean cock and ball torture. Mm-hmm. I mean
10: – <laughs> You don't mean cock and ball torture. Again.
2: <laughs> I know. Although you might enjoy that too. But what you may need is a little cognitive behavioral therapy which is a pretty effective way for a lot of people to change a a behavior that they regularly engage in. That's destructive to really get a handle on it. And it's a short term thing. It's not like you get into a room with somebody who saws open your head and unpacks your brain for 10 years. It's really, you know, three months, six months of just focusing in on this issue, this problem, this compulsion that you have to sex with this person that you do not want a relationship with who has reached out and harmed a relationship or harm someone that you wish to be in a relationship with and to figure out how, uh-huh. to, how to end that, how you stop doing that. I don't think I can help you figure out how to stop doing this thing you've been doing for five years. That's kind of self-destructive at this point, just in a phone call, but you do need to stop and you have options. You can put up a Tumblr porn and satisfy that uh, exhibitionistic thing. You can find other people to sex with who aren't malicious or won't lash out in this way. In an attempt to control you to keep the sex coming, you have options beyond her. Yeah, yeah. That said, if engaging with this person didn't do shitty things to your life, if it wasn't harmful, there would be no problem here, even if it was kind of compulsive. Even if you compulsively enjoyed or regularly enjoyed, routinely enjoyed, Sexting with somebody that you just had a sexting relationship with where you just – it was just about swapping hot picks and that gave you kind of an erotic buzz and a nice charge in your day and it didn't interfere with your relationships. and didn't interfere with your job or the rest of your life. There would be no problem with that. That's nothing to be on the rack no. about or on a shrink's couch about. That's fine. What's not fine here is you continue to sex with somebody who has demonstrated to you that they will reach out and harm you to keep those sex coming.
11: That's true. That's true.
10: Well, but I, I, okay. So I guess what you, what you said before, why am
2: I not in a relationship with this person? Like, why
10: am I, why am I compulsively texting somebody that I
2: don't like? Because she gives you something that you do like. What you like about her is not her. It's Mm -hmm. this, it's this interaction, this exchange. It's your phone buzzing away half the day with dirty fun shit. And you can get Mm -hmm. your phone buzzing away half the day with dirty fun shit from somebody else. You're telling okay. yourself right now she's the only person I can get this from. This this is the place I get this. You know what? There's another donut shop right down the street. You can get jelly donuts elsewhere. You don't have to go to the donut shop where the guy behind the counter punched you.
1: Right.
10: <laughs> okay. 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 Wow. Yeah, I know. I I need to do that.
2: If it was donut shops, you would get on Google Maps and you would search donut shops and a million pins would drop and you would know where to go. There is a kind of Google Maps for other people that you can sex with, which is Tumblr, FetLife, all sorts of places you can go to meet other people who are kinky or interested in just a sexting relationship or just – a sexual vibe you can you can locate others to have this kind of relationship with easily because the internet exists to help you find other people who share this who want this kind of limited erotic interaction with somebody that's safe and respectful and have you ever exposed her shown her pictures to anybody posted them publicly all right so you're a safe person to sext with because you wouldn't do something like i would never do that you are sexting with someone who is unsafe and you need to fucking stop it. That's self-destructive. Not the sexting. You're saying, "Oh, this sexting is so 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 self-destructive, so compulsive." No, the sexting is fine. What's self-destructive and compulsive is her sexting with her. Stop sexting mm-hmm. with her. Sex with somebody else.
10: Okay, okay, okay. But further complicating the issue, if I if I just made it for a second, uh, she's Japanese. I and I only, I if only I speak Japanese. I I love the Japanese culture, and. I can do this. I like to do this in Japanese and with Japanese people, Japanese girls in particular. And I don't know where I can find Japanese girls that will want to do that.
2: On the internet. On the internet. I believe okay. I believe Japan is online and I believe people of Asian <laughs> descent in the United States are online. Okay. You may have to look right. a little harder to find what you want because it's not just any girl out there who's interested in sexting is going to work for you because you have this particular interest and I hope you're not objectifying people based on their race. I trust that you're not, you sound pretty thoughtful Mm. and it's fine to objectify people so long as you are also remembering and treating them like people as well and not just the objects. They also are, Mm. but you just going to have to look a little harder, look a little longer before you find the ideal candidate. Okay. And from what
10: you've heard, you don't recommend that I try dating this girl. Like if I date this girl for like six months, get it out of my system, that's not going to work. That's not going to be a thing.
2: People talk about getting it out of your system when it comes to sex and I've never really seen that work. I'm going to visit a professional dominatrix just once to get this, get my desire to be tied up out of my system. This thing I've been jacking off about for 35 years. I'm going to visit a pro dom or 25 years or 10 years. I'm going to visit a pro dom just once to get it out of my system. It's not how it works. It doesn't no. get people out of your system to fuck them. It kind of gets them into your system. Mm-hmm,
10: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, okay. So the closer I keep this girl, the closer she's going to get in- entwined with me. If you but will.
2: I'm curious, if she's your ideal in so many ways, why is it you don't like spending time with her? Why is it you couldn't see yourself in a relationship with her? What the, We know what's right about her. The, yeah, the, the, the I know. K- the kink, the race, uh, you know, the, the sexually adventurous element of her personality that allows for her to have this kind of interaction with you what's wrong about her
10: i i don't know i i can't put my finger on it i just i feel i just feel gross around her i don't know i, I don't is that like your own her, wait, is,
2: is that your own internalized shame about your kinks and interests or is that something about her oh i'm sure it's my own
10: thing i'm sure it is, is because she, another, she does she turns she, around sexually
2: i mean does she does she have a lovely personality? Do you enjoy spending time with her when you spent time with her and you're just wrestling with your own feelings of shame or self-incrimination around the racial element of your desire? Probably. Okay. Well then I've just been so long beating her up in my response to you based on what little information I had. Maybe you're the bad guy. Not that that exonerates Mm -hmm. her for the malicious thing she did, sending those sex to somebody that Mm -hmm. you were dating so that she could Mm -hmm. keep you all to herself. But if you can't see yourself dating this person, even though you're attracted to her, you, you're sexually uh-huh. compatible you have no pro- you enjoy spending time with her she's not personally repulsive her personality isn't awful if the only thing is your hang up this in this this big nothing undefined hang up that could be you haven't been able to break through your fetishization of her as an object as an asian woman the exterior uh-huh. and you're not allowing uh-huh. yourself to let her be a human being as well and to tap into that
10: I had I had another relationship with another Japanese girl before her. We didn't have sex for a year, like me and this girl. And that's when I started the sexting. I was sexting in the background. I felt very guilty about cheating and I was. I was having an affair sex like texting wise. And then I started seeing the sexting partner, but I just didn't really enjoy being with her. I don't know. I
2: And why? Why didn't you enjoy being with her? And the woman that you were dating that you reached out and destroyed that relationship, was she Asian?
10: Yeah, they're
2: all Japanese. <laughs> okay, so you can date an Asian woman. Oh my God, you're so complicated. You can date Asian <laughs> women, so it's not like you were treating her as a, completely as an object and dating you know, round-eyed Caucasian bitches and treating her you know, and sneaking around with the Asian woman you were actually attracted to. No. Not, I, not, like, not like the guy I, who's into big girls who you know, has sex on the sly with big girls and dates and marries skinny bitches. No, no. That ain't, that no. ain't
10: you. Uh, I'm pure Japanese all the time. I speak Japanese. That's what I, I like speaking Japanese in my relationships. And so I, when, I like, when I'm with a girl, I like speaking in Japanese.
2: That's we are going to get so many calls about your call. Oh, really? Why? Yeah, I, just, I, I could just hear the phone ringing now. Before we even play your call on the air, I can hear the phone ringing. Because <laughs> a lot of people are going to be really uncomfortable with this kind of uh, racial objectification.
10: I know. I I understand that. And I've had this conversation with so many people around here, but it's because it's the level of the language. And I've had a hard time trying to explain that to other people. I I just, I have like a language fetish, if you will. I like languages. And Japanese is a particular one that I like.
2: And I want to say I'm comfortable with people having particular desires and acting on them so long as people, and particular preferences and tastes, as long as people are respectful to those who fall outside their preferences and tastes. And so long Mm. as people don't, objectify or fetishize, only objectify, only fetishize the people that they're with. To some extent, we do objectify the people we're with and fetishize them. And we kind of should. And usually we're, you know, that's okay with us. There are times we want to be objects. We want to be physical Mm. beings, present things in the room that are looked at and appreciated. But we want to be looked at and appreciated and treated like that by someone who also is down with us being a three-dimensional human being with feelings, needs, and desires of our own and not just a nightstand that you come on, right? Mm -hmm, Not mm -hmm, just a thing in the room. I'm not sure what your problem is. If you can date other Asian women, you don't need to be sexting with this one who may be a bit deranged. But if Mm – there's some block that's your own internalized shame around the sex ex you're engaging in with this particular woman. If it's the combo of the BDSM and the Dom sub play with her that disqualifies her from being a candidate for relationship, I can see why she'd be angry enough to reach out and want to hurt the person you're choosing instead to be in a relationship with.
10: Right. And I agree with that. And that's why I've somehow after this last year, I've somehow sort of forgiven her and I've started entertaining the notion of trying to, trying to make it work with her. But I don't know. <laughs> I'm very
2: confused. I'm just I think you confused. should go try to make it work for her. After all of this, what we drill down to is, or what I think the, the real issue might be, you've been on my couch now for weeks, it feels like, what the real issue might be is your shame around your kinky desires, around BDSM. And you, okay. do, and you do that with her, and you reveal who you really are sexually to her. and It is a little dark, and then you don't like being looked at by her. You don't like... Being, you can't be with someone who knows you for who you really are sexually because it's a little dark. And you need to get over that yourself. You need to accept your sexuality and your sexual desires and not punish the people that you express those desires with and, and, and indulge in your preferred sexual acts with by ruling them out as potential life partners. You're like mm-hmm. the person who has a one-night stand with somebody who then says, I couldn't date you because you're the kind of person who has a one-night stand. It's like, you know, you do – you're a slut. You had a one night stand. I don't want to be with a slut. It's like, you're a slut. You had a one night stand too. I can't be with you because you're, you know, you do those crazy kinky things. Yeah. With you, I do those crazy kinky things. Get over your shame and your self-hatred. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. Okay.
11: Good
10: luck. Well, all right, Dan, thank you very much for the call. I really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. That is really
11: nice of you. Hi, Dan. Uh, 27 year old male. Uh, greetings from Republican San Diego. Uh, I got a question for you uh, about how to approach um, the kind of girls I'm attracted to. I am a Jewish guy by blood, like 100% Jewish, ethnically, culturally. You could could always identify me as being Jewish, but I'm not religious. I'm an atheist, and I don't really want anything ever in my life to do that really with um, practicing Jewish custom. Like, I don't even know if I want Passover, for example. Anyway, the problem is that I really like the way Jewish girls look like the ones who are more religious and I can't ever date them. And I really, I've found like, i the last year, I've dated like a few girls who that's kind of ultimately stopped. And I've been kind of crushed about it because I couldn't do anything about it. But like, they're just my type in some way. What do you suggest I should do about this? Like, should I try to find a way to get more religious or try to find a way for them to kind of accept me for not being religious? I kind of like the latter better.
2: I fielded a call uh, that addressed the very delicate subject of race in America all by my lonesome, but I am not touching this Jew thing without an actual Jew sitting in. Nancy Hartunian, actual Jew. I am a Jewess. What's going on here?
0: I, You know, okay, so him being attracted to the Jewish ladies seems like great. Yeah, hell yeah. But I don't get what he's talking about about... Religious.
2: Appearing Jewish girls. Like yeah. Not a secular appearing Jewish girl but a religious presenting Jewish girl. All I thought listening to his call was like, is there a thing in Jewland that's parallel to the Catholic schoolgirl outfit thing? Where at Halloween you can go buy Catholic schoolgirl outfits. they are porn that features girls in Catholic schoolgirl outfits and it's about the innocence and the despoiling of that innocence. And hopefully you only do this with con- consenting adults and da-da-da-da and it's role play. Is there a Jewish equivalent to that? I don't
0: think there's from porn. <laughs> <laughs> Being from means that you, like certain really conservative Jews will, the women are supposed to cover their heads, but the way that they do that is they wear wigs. Mm-hmm. So when you go to New York City, you'll see lots of women, especially in the really like Hasidic Jewish parts of town, wearing these wigs that are really obviously wigs. And they dress like kind of dowdy, you know, like they're all covered up and all of that. and. I don't think that's what he means. Or wants. He's a
2: secular Jew. He's wondering, would a religious Jewish woman want him humping her leg? Maybe he just needs to go into musical theater and do a lot of productions of Fiddler on the Roof. He'd constantly have a boner on stage.
0: I don't know about San Diego's Jewish population. I think that's his problem. He needs to get to New York City or take a trip to Israel and look around. He'll he'll be swimming in Jewesses and they don't – most of them will be secular. Is like, that
2: he's in San Diego where there are so few Jews on the ground that the only ones he can spot are the ones with a more religious presentation?
0: Yeah. Well, what is – I still don't understand what this religious presentation is. I like, don't either. Mean? Like Jews don't have wimples. <laughs> Jews don't wear Roman collars. Walking around like like rocking back and forth and looking at the Torah? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, I don't Western
2: know. Western wall role play <laughs> where she tries to go pray at it and you throw a rock at her? How would that work?
0: Sexy. <laughs> yeah, no. He 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 introduced his call by saying, "Conservative San Diego. That's the, that's your problem, young man. You need to go to move to New York City. Why move wouldn't to the you East anyway? Coast. Yeah, yeah. And everybody there is a secular Jew. <laughs> We're everybody? running everything.
2: Al Sharpton is a secular Jew. Does MSNBC know?
0: Yeah, we own MSNBC. But um, being attracted to to Jewesses, thumbs up. I I get you. I'm all for it. You must be loving. Broad City. Yeah.
2: That's one hot Jewess on Broad City.
0: I should say. Speaking of Broad City, uh, after Dan and I finished recording that stupid conversation, guess who came to visit us in our squad little – our opulent studios on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building overlooking the beautiful Puget Sound? You guessed it. The girls from Broad City came and chatted with Dan and gave some sex advice. And that will be coming up in a couple of weeks. So be sure to tune in for that one most likely on March 15th. Stay tuned. They were really cute. We're still kind of hyperventilating over here.
4: Hey, Dan, I am calling to say thank you so much for saying what you said about Hillary and Bernie. I am a Hillary supporter, or whatever you want to call it. I'm totally for both of them. I'm undecided. I don't know who I'm going to vote for. And all my friends who are Bernie supporters have made me feel like a complete idiot for not knowing. And I have I was blocked by a friend who thought I was just ridiculous for maybe supporting Hillary and suggesting that there may be some underlying sexism in some of the criticisms against her. I think Bernie's awesome. I also think Hillary is awesome, and I am totally going to support whoever the Democrat is. So thank you so much. Maybe I can point to you as an example of someone awesome who is also totally... Supporting whichever Democrat gets in.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in regards to the 18-year-old who was scared to tell her boyfriend that she was actually a year and a half younger than she really is. And I think I have a really good way to roll this out to him. The trick is to make him think that she's about to tell him something like she has cancer first. So she should start out with, I have something that I'm scared to tell you about. I'm afraid I've been lying to you about something, and I'm scared to tell you because I care about you and I think you're amazing and wonderful and the best guy I've ever been with. And I only told you this because I was scared and I really want to be truthful with you because I see this as a really great, solid relationship. And by that point, The color will have drained from his face, and he will be so scared she's about to tell him that she has lymphoma. And then all she'll say is, I'm actually a year and a half younger than you believe I am. I'm not 20, I'm 18. And by that point, he will be so relieved that he will smile, thank God, and wrap his arms around her, and he will say, this is no big deal.
11: Hey, Dan. Uh, This is actually the guy who uh, got a blowjob and the girl left bloodstains on my sheets. And so I guess there was some hullabaloo about or some uh, some uproar about my call, which I totally understand. As soon as I hung up, I immediately knew that I worded my question very poorly. The problem uh, or the reason behind that was because I was really stoned at the time. And that's another reason why the situation with the girl was so awkward or why I handled it so poorly, I think, is because I was a little bit uh, less than sober, maybe more than a little bit less than sober. But uh, yeah, so I want everyone to know that I understand why you're upset. I don't even remember what I said, but yeah, I'm on your side. I'm on the world side
2: and we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you have a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. There are now 30 cities on the Hump Film Fest tour. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out if my dirty little point festival is coming to your town. Follow me on Twitter at fakedanSavage. Follow Eli Sanders on Twitter. At Eli J. Sanders. And speaking of Twitter, Bingo Sparkles tweets I didn't know you could fuck someone's mouth with your foot. Thank you, Fake Dan Savage and the Savage Lovecast for this enlightening info. Need a big mouth and a tiny foot, but it can be done. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back after next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thank you.